let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, the horrific murder of Catherine Fuller transfixed Washington nearly 40 years ago. And today it's the subject of a book by former DC public defender Tom Dibdahl. Dibdahl convincingly argues in his book, which is out today, that several innocent young black men were unfairly convicted. He's here to tell us about what happened and what is still happening. It's January 31st, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Tom Dibdahl, you are a former longtime public defender in DC, but you're here today because you wrote, you just wrote a book, When Innocence is Not Enough. It's about the Catherine Fuller murder in 1984 and the men convicted of killing her. Let's start at the beginning. One thing that struck me about this case, reading it, it's a horrific, horrific case. Fuller was killed on a, went, on a weekday afternoon. It wasn't late. It wasn't dark. Um, this was H Street, an area we now know as a sort of bustling nightlife spot. What happened? Mrs. Fuller left her house about 4.30, heading uh, for a shopping trip to the liquor store, actually. And she never came back. And about 90 minutes later, this was around 6 o'clock, a street vendor at the corner of 8th and H went into the alley that runs between 8th and 9th behind 8th Street into an empty garage. And as he started to open the door, he saw her body. And... It turns out that she had been horrifically beaten, kicked, and sodomized with a stick. It was just an ugly, horrible case. She was a small woman, mother of six. And as you can imagine, as soon as people learned about this, there was a, a lot of anger and outrage at what had happened. It was just horrible. How did D.C. at the time react? And in fact, it was a national story, really. It was. And it certainly was a huge DC story. Very early on, people knew that that she'd been kicked and beaten to death, but the real details came out down the road because the police had kind of held them back on the, the assumption that only the killer would know the really ugly details of the crime and that might help them solve the case. But the more people learned about it, the more outrage there was. And certainly by the time it came to trial a year later, the police had arrested 17 people, 12 of them were indicted, and as it ended up, 10 of them went on trial about a year after her murder. Her killing was on October 1st of 1984, and the trial started in October of 85, and by that time, it was, it was something that everyone was talking about, front page news in the Post, and at that point, the Washington Times, uh, TV. It was a major, major topic of discussion throughout the city. So it was a tragic death, but the fallout, and you're telling, and lots of people's tellings, 
is tragic too. Ultimately, eight men, eight young black men, were convicted of her murder. And decades later, we learned that they were quite possibly innocent, which is what they had claimed all along. Can you walk us from the trial through whatever it was that got the case reopened? Just for a little background, the story that the government told about what supposedly happened was that it was a local gang went by the name 8th and H Crew that was responsible for this. And they had basically tried to rob her, gone crazy when she resisted. And in fact, they, the detective said it was like sharks on a feeding frenzy. And the prosecutor likened it to Lord of the Flies, where these kids just go crazy. And that was the government's story. And it's an incredible, gripping story. And it was the only story anyone heard. So everyone assumed this was a gang attack. And in essence, the only question people had was, who was involved? Were all these guys involved? And they had no other story to tell, partly because they had poor defense for the most part. There were a couple exceptions. But all they had to offer was alibis. And these were kids who had kind of typical lives, and they were arrested two or three months after the killing, and they couldn't remember exactly what they'd been doing that day. So when they said, what's your defense? What's your story? They just said, well, I wasn't there. I, I didn't do it. Said, well, well, where were you? Well, I, I don't know. It was two months ago, and it was five o'clock, and I live around there. So they had no defense to this powerful story. And in the end, the jury was, I think, reluctant to convict them. They deliberated for nine days when people pretty much assumed it was an open and shut case. But in the end, they had no other story and they were convicted. And what they didn't know was that there was a completely different crime scenario and a far more likely suspect that the police and the prosecutor had kept hidden. And it wasn't until Starting about 20 years later, a Washington Post reporter named Patrice Gaines, who had had a little involvement in the initial trial, started reinvestigating the case. She convinced the Post that it needed another look. And through her efforts, the case gradually was reinvestigated by her and another reporter, and they uncovered this evidence along with a lot of other facts that that undermine this government theory. And through her efforts, primarily, the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project got interested in the case. And they, through their research and efforts, got it back into the courts for an appeal. So the, the subtitle of your book is uh, Hidden Evidence and the Failed Promise of the Brady Rule, which sort of gets me to my question, which is, isn't it illegal for the prosecution to withhold evidence like that? Well, it breaks the Brady rule. The, the, the problem, and as I explore this in my book, is that the Brady rule itself is clear. It says in a criminal trial, the uh, prosecution, the state, is required to disclose any favorable evidence to the defense. And the, the point is obvious. You want a trial to be fair. And if the police, the prosecution, uncovers evidence that supports guilt of the defendant that they should disclose that. 
But the problem, as I detail in my book, is that over time, the Brady Rule was very often ignored. And there was a legal technicality about it, which was favorable evidence have to be disclosed, but it's a constitutional violation only if it's, quote, material, which the courts have been very slippery on defining. So what regularly happened and still happens is that there's some favorable evidence and the prosecution doesn't want to disclose it, like in this case. So they don't. And then even when it's found out and they get back into court and they say, this was a violation, my client should get a new trial. The court will say, well, they should have disclosed it. But if they don't think that it would likely have changed the outcome, they'll say, well, it wouldn't have mattered. And so prosecutors would also use that. They weren't supposed to. It was only a judge who was supposed to decide, was this evidence material? But you can imagine and, and put yourself in a place of the prosecutor in this case. It's a huge case. It's by far the biggest case of his life. He's arrested 17 people. He's about to put 10 of them on trial. You know, they've announced that this case is solved and it's a gang. And then they find evidence of one person with an accomplice who was at the scene of the crime, who was running away from the garage when the police came, holding something under his coat. And by the way, the object that was used to sodomize Miss Fuller was never recovered. When they investigate him, they find he already has this history of serious violence against women. He's absolutely a prime suspect. And he was living, in fact, a few steps from the garage where her body was found. But if he was guilty, if he was the one who did it, it meant the whole theory of this gang, all the people they'd arrested, all the things about we've solved the case, it's a, was wrong. And he didn't want to risk that. And so they said, well, we'll just keep it under wraps. And that's what they did. And. If it hadn't been for this Post reporter who went back to reinvestigate, it probably would have stayed hidden forever. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So if I'm a prosecutor, you know, and I find like a airplane ticket that proves the person was in Kentucky at the time of the murder, I kind of know I got to turn that over. But on these other things, he can say to himself, well, this is clearly not material and who knows and so on. And, and in theory, live with himself. Yeah, and that's exactly the problem. You've got it perfectly that if it's not some absolute smoking gun, 
there's almost always a rationalization. But yeah, you, you but that fit the narrative of Washington at the time, the city that exactly was petrified about crime and convinced that young black men everywhere were a danger. Right, and I, I think you can't ignore the racist element of this crime and the whole case. It is interesting that Miss Fuller was black. All the defendants were black, but the prosecutor, the detectives were white. Uh, the judge was white. And I think certainly in the general population, people were ready to believe, and, and even frankly, a lot of black people were ready to believe that a gang of young blacks could do something this horrible. So in the uh, Hollywood version of this, the bringing to light of this new evidence would clarify everything and, and people would be free and the sun would be back in the sky. But that's not actually what happens here. The evidence pretty compelling. Most of these guys are still in jail. Know that, that there was no happy ending. They served sentences ranging from 25 to 35 years. They're on lifetime parole for the crime. There was no happy ending because when it did get back into court, the court all the way up to the Supreme Court said, yeah, the prosecutor should have disclosed this evidence. There's a possibility it would have changed the outcome. But they totally credited the snitches who had flipped and testified against the others. And even though they had subsequently recanted and said, I made up these stories, I lied because I didn't want to go to jail for life. They credited that and they said, we think this is too little, too late to have made a difference in the case. We're not sure it would have changed the outcome of the case. So this other suspect who was seen there, what happened to him? His name was James McMillan. And he was, as I mentioned, living right there and had access and was on the scene that day, running away from the garage where her body was when the police came. Within a couple of weeks after this, he committed two daytime street robberies of women in the same general area. In fact, one of them was of a woman named Nadine Winter, who at that time was a DC councilwoman. They snatched a bag she had, punched her in the face so hard it broke her nose. And this was kind of typical of McMillan. So what happened, he was arrested shortly after the second attack. He was caught red-handed, he confessed, he pled guilty, and he went to prison for eight years. And so he was paroled, uh, I, I think in 94, about that time, but within a couple of months of his release from jail, while he was still in the halfway house, still transitioning back, he committed a horrific murder of another young woman in an alley not far from 8th and H. It was a, a murder, rape, sodomy again. And he was convicted of that and is serving life without parole. And that didn't sway the Supreme Court either. Well, it, it did not. Partly because now you're into a tricky a legal area. The fact that it obviously happened after the Fuller murder it could not have been admissible at the time because it hadn't happened. And so they really didn't make that part of their calculus because even though McMillan was a prime suspect and an extremely violent young man even then, he hadn't 
been convicted. But I think what it does in practical terms is it's just one huge reason to know that these eight guys who were convicted were innocent and that James McMillan was not. Because in fact, at the new trial hearings, there was an expert witness who not only testified that Miss Fuller's injuries were more likely inflicted by one person rather than a gang, but also said that a rape, sodomy, murder is extremely rare. And the fact that you had two in the same physical area and with some similarities are just powerful evidence that McMillan was the killer and that these eight men who were convicted had nothing to do with the crime. So you came on the scene in D.C. later as a public defender. Let's get back to the physical city here. What is this case, what happened in 1984 and the way it's been discussed since, tell us about the justice system in D.C. in the 80s, today, whenever? It tells us, first off, that racism is just deeply embedded in the system. People were ready to believe that this horrible crime was committed by a gang of young black men. Whoever did this had to have some serious pathology. It was beyond just violence. This was a tiny woman. She was kicked and beat. She couldn't resist in any significant way. And to do this was just horribly gratuitous. And to think that these guys would do this, they claimed there was 20 or 25 people there, including participants and people watching. And none of them, curiously, ever told even a friend, oh, I saw this horrible thing. And many years later at the new trial hearing, a a woman who had been a girl then, 13 years old, testified that the detectives pulled her in and they said, you know, we know you saw these guys doing this to this woman. And she was only 13, but she still remembered exactly. She said, I said to them, if I had seen something this horrible, I wouldn't even be right. I couldn't even be talking about it. I I couldn't even be functioning. But we were ready to believe that these kids, really, mostly kids, teens, a few older, would do something like this. And the fact is that it, it didn't happen that way. Something, by the way, that virtually never came out in any of the legal activity is that the 8th and H area at that time was a community. These people knew each other. Most of the guys who arrested knew Mrs. Fuller. They uh, went to school with her sons. They played sports with them. The idea that not only they would pick her for a robbery— by the way, knowing she had no, no no more money than they did. But they would rob her. But then at some point, for no reason, they would kick and beat her and sodomize. It's just, to me, it's mind-boggling that anyone who really knew much about that neighborhood and about these guys would ever think that. And yet, because of the mood of the city, because of the horrific nature of the crime, they were able to sell that story. and. People believed it, and the result was this terrible 
miscarriage of justice. Got to ask, um, did you ever meet any other guys? Yes, I, I did. I, I know uh, Chris Turner quite well. He was the first one released because he uh, did not have any prior record at all. But I've met all except one of the, the guys had dinner with them not too long ago. And I have to say, you know, people sometimes say, you know, any of us are capable of, of anything. And so if I say to someone, you know, if you met these guys, you would know that they couldn't have done that. No one could ever say that absolutely. But to spend time with them is just to feel like these were just guys from the 8th and H neighborhood. But for some reason, they, they had, and as I've looked at this whole story, some real core integrity. And Chris is an example that they offered him before the trial. They said, you know, we'll give you a plea to accessory before and after the fact. Two to six years. And you'll be out in two years. And Chris said, nah, I don't want to take it. And subsequently, I asked him, I said, Chris, you know, you've, <laughs> he spent 25 years in prison. He got released, but I said, do you ever regret not taking that plea deal? You look back and you're sitting in prison and you don't know if you're ever going to get out. And you could have been out in two years. You're sorry you didn't do it. And he said, absolutely not. I would rather die in prison than say, I took part in something this horrible, or even I stood and watched it because I couldn't live with myself if I said that, if I had done that. And these guys, all of them, again, they were just, just typical guys. They could have been paroled much earlier if they had admitted guilt, and they wouldn't do it, even though it kept them in prison. They could have gotten leniency, but they didn't want mercy. They wanted justice, and they never got it. Tom Dibdahl, thank you so much for joining us. Again, for everyone, the book just dropped today. It's called When Innocence is Not Enough. And you will be uh, on the 4th of February at Politics and Prose for an event. All of the six surviving defendants are going to be there. Right. That's 5 o'clock at Politics and Prose. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And before you go, lead producer Priyanka Tilbe is here with some quick news. Virginia is another step closer to passing a bill that would require students to play on sports teams that match their biological sex. The bill passed out of subcommittee yesterday, but there are still several steps before it would become a state law. If passed, it would apply to all public school teams from elementary school through college. Meanwhile, the app Rent Cafe has put out new data that says D.C. is a leader in building new apartments, almost 40,000 in the past decade. But they're some of the smallest on the market, averaging at about 750 square feet. The new apartments also tend to be really amenity-rich and in, quote-unquote, coveted locations. In this case, they mean Navy Yard and Arlington. Despite the growth, D.C. still has a high occupancy rate and is struggling to get enough affordable housing. And lastly, we have some really big news. Next week, both this podcast and our sister newsletter, Hey DC, are going all in on Valentine's Day prep. 
Get psyched for the DC Love Kit from February 6th to 10th. We've got travel suggestions, dating advice, friendship advice, and we'd love your suggestions too. So call in with what you want to hear. Our number is 202-642-2654. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, or better yet, tell all your friends on social media. And if they want to read more, they can check out our newsletter. It's called Hey DC. They can subscribe at our website, which is dc.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.